Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Now we're going to have a local roundtable focused on issues here in the city. Tomorrow we'll be looking a bit on the county, today in the city. Uh, we are here with uh, Dr. Kay Whitehead. She comes back after a brief break in the green room. Yes, I never left. I love this place. Associate <laughs> <laughs> Professor of uh, Communication, African and African American Studies at Loyola University of Maryland and author of a number of books, <coughs> pardon me, including My Black Sons, Raising Boys in a Post-Racial America. Luke Broadwater is back in the house, reporter for the Baltimore Sun, covering city hall and local politics. Good to have you back, Luke. Good morning. And a return visit in a new role. At a new position is Jessica Lewis, now organizer with Power Inside. Jessica, good to have you here. Thanks, Mark. Good to see you. And 410-319-8888 is the number. You can log on to our Facebook pages. Uh, you can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Uh, you can send us an email to talk at org. but do call us at 410-319-8888. So I've been looking at this, and we're going to look at this in some greater depth over the coming weeks, um, about what a $15 an hour minimum wage does when it's passed in communities around the, around the country. but So, look, let me just start with you. So talk about, about the politics here. We had the few forums that I ran. I think almost every mayoral candidate, including um, then-candidate Pugh, said, yes, she would sign the bill if it came across her desk that, that, that for a $15 uh, uh, minimum wage in Baltimore, not until 2022. Two. Two. Mm-hmm. So what happened? Yeah, so you, this was an about face. Um, the mayor uh, was very clear while running for office that she was in favor of this legislation and, in fact, had made some of her political reputation um, years ago on the 1010 minimum wage. She had, uh, if people remember, uh, sat with uh, Michelle Obama in the uh, the State of the Union speech um, in favor of, the, of raising the minimum wage. Um, so she uh, ha- had been sort of a champion in Annapolis on this issue. So people expected her to to continue to support it. She obviously was very clear in her uh, questionnaires saying she would sign it. She was in favor of it. Uh, then she got into office, and um, it looked like the bill might actually pass <laughs> right before the bill had failed. So now the bill is going to pass. All these new young progressive uh, Democrats had come on the city council, and they were in favor of it. And it passed uh, with 12 supporters, 11 who voted for it and one who was out of town. Um, and she, Pew started making, Mayor Pew started making these um, adjustments in her position. She started talking about the impact uh, to businesses that some might leave the um, she said that uh, it would hurt the city's um, bottom line because her finance department did a report saying if they had to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour for all of the city workers what that would be and they calculated it to be 115 million over four years um, so she she started voicing these concerns and you could see her position sort of start to change slowly publicly uh, now what she said is on Friday, she said she is going to veto it, uh, which is, I think, an un- unpopular position among the voters in Baltimore. We've have we've seen polling about this and the voters do like this. Um, so she uh, but that said, she has said it wouldn't take effect for a few years anyway. Right. We're still phasing in the state minimum wage raise. And let's see if we can do it at the state level. So Baltimore, in her words, isn't the hole in the donut. So she tried to carve out a middle ground while still vetoing the bill. So it has not been vetoed officially yet. Yeah, she just announced that she was going to. So, so they're saying that it would cost the city approximately thirty million dollars a year, right, or so, the city budget itself. Correct. Is that real? 
Well, so there's been some uh, independent uh, analysis uh, put forth by the proponents of the bill that think that they think that that number is overstated. Uh, it was calculated not only in just the uh, actual dollar raise to uh, minimum wage workers, but also um, what they call wage inflation, which is people who make around $15 right now would see people with perhaps less skills or education or experience that get a raise up to their level, and then would uh, the uh, employers would feel pressured to raise their wages as well, and they might go up to, what, $18 an hour or something. So, And, and that is a phenomenon you do see sometimes with, uh, with raisings of the minimum wage. Other thoughts here on the panel? Jessica? Well, I think that um, the question isn't what the fiscal uh, impact would be on the city, but the impact that having a, having a really substandard uh, living, living wage uh, is to the, to the people of the city. And I think that the, I've heard the argument, and I've seen this a lot lately, um, from people who do make $15 an hour through having some sort of professional certification who are saying, you know, that renders all of my hard work meaningless if someone else can just walk into a McDonald's and get a job for $15 an hour. But that ignores the question of what it actually costs to live and the fact that the minimum wage hasn't kept pace with what it actually costs to live and the fact that everybody in the city deserves a wage that they can afford to eat off of and pay their bills and pay their rent and, you know, educate their children. And I think the the argument about the fiscal cost is really secondary um, compared with with the argument for meeting our basic human needs for people that are working and a lot of time working, you know, two or three jobs right now to make ends meet on the minimum wage that we have. Sorry. <clears throat> Sorry. Well, I think it's interesting. Okay, Whitehead. Yes, is this whole notion of, of the minimum wage. I was not surprised that the mayor began to backpedal. I, I went back, I was doing some reading. I'm like, we're always talking about raising the minimum wage. I remember in 2008, Barack Obama was talking about, you know, one of his first things he was going to do was raise the minimum wage. At that point, he was going to raise it to like $9.50 by 2011. And as soon as he got in the office, he immediately began to backpedal. That he really didn't pick it up again until 2013 in his State of the Union address. He said, no, we definitely have to do this. This is a priority. It was a priority that I made it less of a priority. Now it's back being a priority again. And so when the mayor is talking about Baltimore City not being the hole in the middle of the donut and she's talking about looking at doing it at the state level, that's not what people are hearing. What they're hearing is you promised that you would do this. You promised you would raise the standard of living and one of the first things you're doing is not following through on a promise that you made. I have had discussions, like you said, Jessica, with people uh, who are professionals, white collar workers. So it's like, oh, I make $15 an hour, but I've been to law school or, you know, I have my PhD. And I think back to something that Representative James Clyburn said. He said, you know, the value of a job is only important depending upon what time of day it is. So when my car breaks down, I'm not calling my doctor. I don't want my lawyer. I don't want my obstetrician. I want the mechanic, right? <laughs> and so when I want my Starbucks coffee, I am not looking to see who the professor is teaching the class. I'm going to Starbucks, and the barista that moment is the most important person that time of day. <laughs> so we, we should think about the value of the work. This society doesn't work if everybody has a PhD. If everybody was a lawyer, then who gets the cars fixed? Who keeps the 7-Eleven open? Who makes sure our trash is picked up? When my trash is not picked up and we have too much snow, the most important person in my 
life at that moment is a person who's designated to clean up the trash on my block. And if he needs to or she needs to make $15 an hour, then do it if that means the job gets done. I think we have to re-educate people on what it means to have a valued skill because it gets taught all the way down the line. And then we're forcing children, if we want to talk about education at some point, but we're forcing children to think we have to become a professional in order to succeed rather than getting a skill. So Anak Agbu tweeted in, tips never get vetoed. Exclamation point. They reduced school funding, but BDC Finance Department, silent. Yes. Um, and we'll look at these other tweets coming in as well. Um, in the sa- Melissa tweeted in, in the same written statement, uh, Mayor promised to increase money for schools to as much as 35% of the budget. So let's talk about the politics here, some of that. Mm. So, A, let me start with, before we get to 35% of the budget, uh, what that might mean and what the state might mean for the schools. What's the, uh, what are the chances this will get overridden? I would say quite small at this point. Um, so initially there were 12 votes, which is enough for a ma- there were 11 override. On the, there were 11 on the night of the vote, right? That's right. But 12 supporters. So right. if all if all supporters were there and stuck to their guns, they could override this veto. Um, Baltimore has a strong mayor system. That's a very high threshold to meet, but it is it would be achievable based on if everyone just stayed consistent. That said, Ed Reisinger immediately after Catherine Pugh announced her veto said he would vote with the mayor. And um, I'm hearing that three or four others would do the same. So you only have probably um, probably seven or eight votes to override at this point, which isn't enough. Um, you know, this is it's interesting because uh, we saw this with Stephanie Rawlings Blake as well. She vetoed a number of of uh, uh, big pieces of legislation the council had put forward um, on body cameras, on uh, the uh, bag tax. Um, et cetera. On the and, referendum to yes. give the council more power in the budget. Right. And the right. only one right. they overruled was the youth fund because that was Jack Young's initiative. So I think if Jack Young really championed this and fought for it, he could get those people back on his side. But he's not. But it doesn't seem that he's willing to, to do that. So uh, and so, what what about the money for schools? How does this fit into all that? The thirty five percent. What does that thirty five percent mean? Well, so of- yeah, on the same questionnaire that she uh, that Mayor Pugh filled out for the unions, where she said um, that she would back a minimum wage, she also volunteered in that that she wanted to increase uh, the city's contribution to schools um, quite substantially. In fact, if she did increase it to the thirty five percent figure, she said the 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 school budget shortfall would be eliminated. Um, she did say she wanted to do that over four years, so phasing about a 5% increase. Right now, the city gives about 20% uh, to the school's budget. If she did phase it in over four years, you wouldn't ha- we would not see the, the shortfall that we see today. The problem is, where do you find that money from? The, the thing everyone's been looking at is the police budget, but people are talking about cuts of 5 or $10 million, which obviously isn't $130 million. So... Um, that said, we do have some progress on that issue in Annapolis. Uh, the governor came out and signed on to uh, the mayor and Maggie McIntosh's plan, although perhaps his own version of that plan, to give some money, $24 million more. Um, and it, it looks like we are getting close to um, closing maybe two-thirds or three-fourths of this gap, but not the whole thing. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come right back with our guests. We're going to look at this some more. We're going to get your calls at 410-319-8888. We're going to talk about missing girls in D.C. and how that uh, affects the city of Baltimore and why 410-319-8888 I'll be calling we are going to get to your calls and uh, other tweets as well don't go away welcome back folks good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner show and reminding you on the way back to our conversation on local news 
Uh, the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From limiting over testing to protecting public school funding, you can learn more about the issues facing Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at marylandeducators.org. That's marylandeducators.org. And we are here with Jessica Lewis, organizer for Power Inside, Luke Broadwater, reporter at the Baltimore Sun, who covers city hall and local politics, and Dr. Kay Whitehead, associate professor of communications in African and African-American studies at Loyola University, Maryland, author of numerous books, including My Black Sons, Raising Boys in a Post-Racial America. And of course, you all are 410-319-8888, to us here at talkinsignershow.org. Uh, before we go to the phones, uh, and... Tom, Hank, Clarence, we're going to get to your calls and others calling in as well and see if there's any other tweets flying through here, which you'll look for. But um, one of the things that uh, we said during, as we're going to break, I'm going to just bring up right now before we forget to bring it up, which is the consent decree hearings coming up in April. Um, I know the power and size was, has been deeply involved in that from the beginning. So what's happening with that? Um, well, there was an open, there was a period for comments, um, for written comments uh, that we submitted, but there's a public hearing. We're not sure entirely how public it is, um, but we're starting to work with women who have ex- experienced um, police, gendered police violence, um, to get their testimonies to make sure that those get there. Um, but what Power Inside has been addressing with that is the the fact that there's a real lack of solutions um, in the consent decree um, that deals specifically with gendered police violence. And, you know, this ties in with the minimum wage as well, because uh, black women in Baltimore are more likely to experience poverty, have higher costs of living. If they're caregivers, um, they require more housing um, and are paid less. They would benefit the most from an increase in the minimum wage um, and are also uh, not, not as likely to be believed when they both report uh, when they report gendered violence to the police, but are also more likely to be re-victimized and re-traumatized through the experience of dealing with the police. And that's left entirely, like really inadequately addressed in the consent decree. So we're hoping, um, we're hoping to get some of that gender violence piece in there to make sure that the police in Baltimore City respond to that more appropriately. And, you know, among other things, stop locking up women for nonviolent uh, nonviolent charges related to homelessness and poverty, like loitering or trespassing for sleeping in abandoned buildings or even for prostitution. So what has not been addressed by this consent decree? I mean, we've covered this in some in, within some intensity right around the time of the consent decree mm-hmm. with, with, with folks of power inside. Well, there's, there's a whole section in the Department of Justice report that deals with um, mishandling of sexual report uh, sorry, mishandling of sexual assault reporting. So when women call the police to tell someone they've been sexually assaulted, the police often don't give them the benefit of the doubt. They assume that they're that they were doing something wrong. Um, they assume that that the woman, if if she's a sex worker, for example, that it was just routine and part of her job. And beyond that, we have testimonies from many women who actually experienced. Um, this sort of trading sex for not being charged with a crime by the police. So this routine act of um, of coercion that we we think is is police rape um, because it's not a free transaction. 
Mm-hmm. It's not. It's it's you know have sex with me or perform the sex act, sex act in order to get to stay out of jail, mm-hmm. um, and that's not at all addressed in the consent decree. It's there. There is some talk about requiring a supervisor um, to approve these low-level, like arrest for low-level charges, um, but there's no oversight mechanism. There's no public accountability, and um, we think it's it's a really, really big issue. Um, it's an a, you know an issue that keeps a lot of women wrapped up in uh, the criminal justice system for really unnecessary reasons. Um, is that program that, that probably go up the phone? Here, I'm just curious. Is the program that uh, that the city started with OSI? It, it was done in the theater district as a kind of a experiment, not towards people for low-level crimes. Does that involve this? It it does to some extent. It's a, there are a number of uh, of low-level like status-level offenses um, that are mostly related to homelessness and poverty, like open containers, loitering, um, things like that. That would require approval from a supervisor in order to make an arrest. But we're asking for clearer guidelines. I mean, ultimately, we would like women to not be arrested for nonviolent charges right. at all. Period. Right. Um, we'd like them to stay out of the criminal justice system altogether. Um, but we'd like them to set some some guidelines. Like, you cannot arrest people for these nonviolent charges um, unless it's under very, you know— very, very necessary, unless it's very necessary. Luke, you're about to say something. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the for years, um, the Baltimore Police Department has has um, had a sort of a, a black eye or a, a terrible reputation because of the way they handled and have handled um, sexual assault cases. Um, they were finding, um, as, as was well documented in the report and, and Jessica referred to, um, uh, the highest am- amount of, of rape claims unfounded anywhere in the country, as though only uh, as though uh, the women of Baltimore had a unique propensity for lying that was not found anywhere else. Right, right. So, and this was really um, a scandal. Um, and I think what what people are saying is a lot of the there was a lot of talk back, and I think it was about 2009 when this really broke, and there were supposed to be reforms put in place. Um, but I think what we're hearing now is that some of these um, so-called reforms have not stuck, and um, we may be uh, seeing some of that again. So, folks, your thoughts at 410-319-8888. Let us go to the phones. We want to hear your ideas and all this. Tom, you're on the air. Welcome. Yes, good morning, folks. I'd like to backtrack for a second on the minimum wage. All right. Something that's been overlooked a bit is uh, people always talk about the negative part of it, but there's some positive things to having a $15 minimum wage, besides the well-being of folks that make that money. Somebody's making 15 bucks an hour over what they're making now, that's more tax money for the city and the state coming out of their paychecks. It's got to help. And also, it's good economic growth where needed most because people tend to spend their money in their own neighborhoods. So if people are making more money, they're going to spend more money in their own neighborhoods. Also, it could take a bite out of crime because like, why should a kid, a young person, stay on the street corner when they could be uh, working in the bistro making 15 bucks an hour? That has always been, but, but the thing with this bill is it doesn't cover kids. Oh. Uh, the $15 minimum wage only covers people 21 and yes, older. Yes, and that was right? something, yeah. um, right? Right. The yeah, Pew yeah. administration had wanted that. They had wanted a training wage and they had wanted um, 
some of uh, for college students and high school right. students to to not the, the employers of them to not have to be pay as much. Um, so they did get some of the things they wanted, and which is why some people were hopeful she would sign it because they did agree to some of uh, Mayor Pugh's amendments. Um, so I did think some people were caught off guard when she when she vetoed it. A number of the other, just to articulate some of the other um, points in favor of the bill, was about 80,000 workers were uh, calculated to be lifted up uh, their wages. Um, in the city? Yeah. 80,000? 80,000. Yes. So $15 is about is about $30,000 a year. So that's not a, a, a huge wage by any stretch but, of the imagination. I, I, I just want to put in stat. <laughs> Let me say it one more time. <laughs> yeah. We're saying 80,000 workers in the city of Baltimore make less than $15 an hour right now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, which is like, uh, I think the workforce is around uh, 400,000 or so. So it's, you know, it's almost a, almost a quarter of the workforce. Um, is working at a very low wage. And a lot of that workforce that you're talking about that makes a higher wage doesn't even live in the city. They're just part of the workforce in the right. city. Well, with all of the city's workforce numbers, you have to remember about two-thirds of the workers in the city um, are from the county. Right. Yeah, right. from the right. county. That's, yeah. that's important to say. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's right, a churn. That's important yeah. to know. And the majority, yeah. churn. my guess is yeah. the majority of people making less than $15 an hour, those 80,000, live in the city. Yeah, I think that some of the advocacy groups have have um, have run the numbers on that, and it is a majority are from the city. Although it would benefit some county residents as well who to who do work in the city. I like yeah. what the Carlos said about spending the money in your own neighborhood, because what does that mean that those who the the main people who are making over fifteen dollars an hour, because that's that's low for some people mm -hmm. who depending upon what their white collar job is, mm -hmm. who are then taking that money out of the city into the county into their own neighborhoods. There, there's a great piece in Mother Jones called "This Is Why a Fifteen Minimum Wage Is Not." the answer by Peter Van Buren, but he goes through and he breaks down what does $15 an hour really look like? If you are traveling to get to work every day and you're on the bus, well, that takes $5.50 a day to travel. So your first hour of work, you're just paying off trying to get there. And by raising everything to $15 an hour, will everything else get raised as a result? Like, will you still be on the bottom? So if I'm making more money, will milk cost more? Will bread cost more? Will there be a higher cost in everything where $15 an hour still becomes part of the working poor? Like, it's a really good look of trying to understand because for some people on the outside well what's $15 an hour well just raise it it's not a big deal what's the impact of that on our culture and I am not against it I want to bring people up to have you know a decent standard of living but can we deal with all the other problems that might arise from that will 15 be the new poor if milk doubles if eggs double well then mm -hmm. what is the solution long term and one of the things we've seen in some of the wealthier cities that have passed the $15 minimum wage is that uh, many of the employers rather than um, Taking a cut out of the profits, um, raise raise the price of goods. Right. Um, so, and that that may be actually the, the the best case scenario. I would argue in in say Manhattan at a nice restaurant where you got a bunch of rich people eating there, and if the staff's getting paid uh, less than fifteen dollars an hour, well, some of these people certainly can pay a little more for the steak or the wine or whatever. Um, it may be harder on, and this is some of the arguments that. Um, uh, Yitzi Schleifer has put forward in his district up in northwest Baltimore. He says he's got a lot of businesses that are right on the line, and if they can just go across the line, well, that's uh, less tax revenue for the city and less less work. Because that, that's city. an yeah. argument has been used for lots of things that never kind of borne itself out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and but that's I think that argument is what concerns Pew perhaps the most, and that's why she's saying let's have the counties do it with us. 
that's going to be a harder thing to sell. And certainly with a Republican governor in office, it's going to be tough. Um, can you get a Kevin Kamenetz or whoever replaces him to, have, to go along? And you've got a very conservative county council as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really conservative. And county Republican <laughs> county executives in Anne Arundel, Harford, right. and Howard. Yeah. Right. 410-319-8888 is the number here. And uh, Hank, you're on the air. Welcome. How you doing today, Mr. Stein? Hank, I'm good. Good to hear you again. <laughs> and my wife just got out the car, so... Her question is this, right? Why have they taken all of this money from the pay tag to take care of the bay, right? Are they now asking for more money? And what are they doing with that? She will take that answer off the question. My thing is this, right? Okay, so if we go to a fifteen dollar minimum wage, right? Which okay, I'm I'm I, I just bought a piece of property. You know I bought the store where they shot the house of cards that I'm gonna turn it into a risk. So turn, now this is what I'm Turn it into a what? Turn into a what? Ribs. I'm going to start doing ribs where they shot the... Uh, All right. Ribs that, that's a very good marketing idea. That's a bill. So anyway, right, here's the thing. So if I got to pay $15 an hour to anyone 21 years or older, right, then I might as well hire my family, pay them that $21 an hour, and then that way, I'm thinking that if I'm hiring my family, my quality control better be good because mm-hmm. now it's your family's name on the line, right? However... Well, I, I listen to you to talk tech um, on Sundays, right? I forget the name of the show. But they say that because of the $15 an hour, a lot of jobs may just go automated and just get rid of people all That's what the right? CEO of McDonald's threatened. Yeah, he would he would uh, put all kiosks, touchscreen touch screen kiosks up front. Well, he's going to do that anyway. Yeah, right, probably. Right. That, that, that's <laughs> yeah. That's that anyway. He's going to do that anyway. Yeah. So my thing is this, right? Why not just get rid of the minimum wage on the capital and make it a living wage for what area you live in. For what area you live in, your paycheck to see. If you live in Manhattan, oh, hold on, wait a minute. Still, if you live in Montgomery County, the richest county in America, then yeah, you should make $15 an hour. But if you live in Cumberland, you should make not a check. I will, let's, t- let's talk okay, about if, that. If, I mean, if you're in, yeah, if you live in Baltimore, the the housing wage calculated by the National Low Income Housing Coalition that you should pay, uh, <laughs> that you should make if you if you don't want to spend more than thirty percent of your income on rent is about twenty four dollars and change. So I'm totally for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think that just I, I enjoy the, hearing the caller. I think sometimes we we throw out what sounds like wonderful solutions uh, to a very complicated problem. So if you live in Montgomery County, which of course is a very rich county, uh, they're not necessarily working in Montgomery County, right? So they may, they may live in Montgomery County and they're going to D.C. to work. And if you're coming into Montgomery County to work at the places that we're talking about, right? We're talking about restaurants. We're talking about places that are on the hourly wage. You're not living in the richest county if you're coming into that area to work. And then it gets very complicated. So so who's making the money? Who's spending the money in their community? What does this really look like? Is it just having kind of whatever you do in your area does it work? I do like this notion of the state setting their own minimum wage. I was looking at some of the figures that you know San Francisco is going to get to $15 by 2018 and Chicago is going to get to $13 by 2019 and San Diego to 1150 by 2017 and Seattle to $15 by 2021. In that sense, Baltimore City is behind. Like The mayor needs mm-hmm. to recognize that we're going to have to make some changes. She cannot wait. She cannot talk about donuts and holes and all these kind of you know analogies. We we need a real solution to a long-term problem that's been festering in Baltimore City. And I, I just wanted to point out the gentleman mentioned uh, Montgomery County yes. as that is by far the richest jurisdiction in Maryland. It's not even close. 
um, they, their county council did something very similar to ours. They passed the $15 minimum wage, and their Democratic county executive, like Leggett, vetoed it, just really? like Mayor Pugh did. Yeah. Leggett vetoed and it as she, well. Pugh said she talked to him on the phone before <laughs> making her decision. So, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. I mean, so we're seeing the same thing, the same issues arise really in a very rich jurisdiction as well as Baltimore. <laughs> Let's keep the poor poor. <laughs> um, so uh, before I go back to the phone here, which I'm going to do and get a bunch of calls in here before the top of the hour, uh, I, was something we talked just about briefly as you walked through the door. The connection between, which we're not can't, I'm trying to get into deeply here, the missing young women, yes. missing women in D.C. and what's happening in Baltimore. You, you have something very specific, Jessica, about that. Um, well, it's it's not really specific, but it's it's the way that that gendered and racialized violence is allowed to happen without the same level of scrutiny. We were just discussing this in the green room as well. Um, that the, the the media kind of the the mainstream media, which I hate saying, but I'll say, um, <laughs> like loves some missing white girls, like will just lose their collective minds over it. Um, but when we have what I think it's twenty two girls missing this year, no, it's almost twenty five at this in, point in, in Baltimore, D- in DC, in DC, in Washington DC, right? There's it it takes like a public outcry before it gets the kind of attention that is that, it black and latino girls for the yes most part, right? yes right, um right, right. and you know part of part right. of it is that uh, not knowing what happened to these women they're especially young women of color are often um like treated older than they are they're sort of treated like they can offer consent when like you know, white girls of their age would not be considered able to have consent. And and that's used to justify um, their going missing or their, you know, being the victims of, of abduction or of sexual violence. Um, they're also more likely to have structural issues that could lead them to not wanting to interact with the police in advance of like a, a traumatic event like an abduction or you know sexual victimization um, because of all these issues that we're addressing with the the consent decree here in Baltimore um, young girls face these sort of same uh, this same sort of you know disbelief from authority figures um, so there's there's a lot of like systemic problems that um, that could have been challenges to to these girls seeking help or to them being believed when they did seek help. Um, And then that amplified, you know, that's compounded by the fact that when this does happen on such a large scale, it takes communities standing up and being upset about it before there's scrutiny on it, before there's really comprehensive action on it. Um, And, you know, that's part of what we're trying to address with the DOJ and the consent decree here is that we have those issues in Baltimore um, that that prevent young women of color um, from getting justice that they deserve. Uh, well, go ahead, Katie. I like that. Yeah, well, I just I wanted to jump on. I, I'm from D.C. Uh, and, and am greatly concerned about this. And this is one of the reasons why I'm such a strong proponent of uh, using social media as a way to bring and put the spotlight on these issues. I mean, talking about the girls, the D.C. girls that are going missing, it has been in the undercurrent of conversation for weeks. Like, we didn't just start talking about this. In certain communities, we've been talking about this. We've been meeting at the churches. I've been traveling back and forth between Baltimore and D.C. because some of the communities where I grew 
grew up. I grew up, you know, in Southeast, Northeast, and now my family lives in Northwest are communities where these girls are going missing, particularly in the Southeast and Northeast areas, which are some of the lower income communities in Washington, D.C., and trying to strategize how do we use social media to bring attention to this area, to put it out on Twitter. Who's controlling the Twitter feed? Who's bringing in the attention of celebrities? I mean, you have LL Cool J, who's now tweeting almost hourly about the girls and pulling in Eminem and other rappers saying, hey, we need your help to draw some attention. You also have the D.C. Police Department kind of counter-tweeting is this new thing where, you know, we're tweeting out about the girls. The tweet was well, not that many girls. It's not really that big deal. It's not, you know, sex trafficking. It's just, you know, girls who are running away. And, you know, we don't spend a lot of time on runaways. And at the same time in D.C., which what you said, Jessica, for the last week we've been dominated by a news story of a young teenage girl who ran off, you know, with an older man and trying to find her. And it's like, well, she's a runaway, but she's white. So we can spend seven days of news on this, and we have almost 25 so, black and brown girls missing. Right. And I think that, that that's um, – I mean, this is, we've had stories like this. It's yes. been a story for the last 40 years, 50 years, 100 years um, that, that we've been covering, that, that, that this has been in, in, anywhere in the news. I mean, when we had, um, we've had women on the show in their 30s and 40s yeah. talk about what happened to them when they were teenagers here in Baltimore with the police not taking seriously what happened to them. Uh, and uh, some of them are guests here frequently. So this is not a, I mean, this is, that's why I wanted yeah. to bring it up in the context of the consent decree, what's happening in Baltimore, that we really have to be aware and kind of put this in the front burner, not the back burner. Uh, and and um, so let me jump back to the phone, as I promised. A couple of calls before the end of the hour. 410-319-8888. Uh, let's go to O'Neill. You're on the air. Welcome. Hello? O'Neill, you're on the air. Go ahead. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So the reason why I'm, I'm calling basically just to share that I have three points. Um, so Maryland, so Baltimore is is in a state, state that has a minimum wage of now of moving towards $10. Right. Um, and the problem is is when one jurisdiction like Baltimore City raises the minimum wage, I'm I'm so worried about jobs and companies leaving to to the surrounding counties. That's my biggest worry, and I think that's why Montgomery County um, put a hold on that because nobody wants their jobs leaving. If it's on a state level, it's totally different. But when it's on a city level, and and the city of Baltimore is not known for being a very wealthy city like. Seattle and San Francisco that can do that with no big problems because companies and businesses want to be in those cities, but but we're begging for businesses and companies to come to Baltimore City. Whenever you're trying to um, put forth some economic development in anywhere, the last thing you do is raise the cost of business. Baltimore needs economic development, and raising the cost of business expense can be a, a negative impact on the city of Baltimore. Okay. And you have, did, did you have a second point? Yeah, the second point is, um, is probably has to do with, um, with oh, basically it's the, ten, it's the $10 minimum wage. I think, I think um, we, should, we should accept the $10 minimum wage and push the state to raise the minimum wage on a state level mm-hmm. as opposed to um, on a city level. Because I really strongly believe it's going to hurt the city of Baltimore when the surrounding counties. You know, if I was a business owner and I had the potential of moving to Baltimore, right now I'll be thinking twice. I'll be saying, you know, those people are thinking about raising costs, and I don't want to deal with these extra costs when I could just go to the neighboring county. Well, you know, let's talk about that for a minute. If you, a $10 minimum wage, straight up, is what, uh, $20,000 a year. <laughs> 
And I'm sorry I laughed. I'm just saying, if you think about how, <laughs> but, I, mean, I, I laugh because you just, it's just incredulous how small that really is when you think about it. People trying to survive and support their, their families on this type of money we're talking about, trying to get it to a point well, what where we get yeah. to 20000 well, And we're, we're not even there yet. We're, we're it's it's like seven twenty-five right now. Right. Yeah. Well, what about the argument that, that O'Neill the, and, and the mayor makes that, you know, that, that, that jobs will, will flee, that businesses will go. If they, get, if they can pay less money for something like that, they'll do it in Baltimore County, they'll do it in Anne Arundel, they'll I, do it in Howard instead of here. I think even the proponents or the opponents of this bill would all like to see it done at the state level. The question was about strategy and leadership, and the 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 coalition that pushed this bill in the city thought you need somebody to take a lead to push other people along, and you're not going to get it at the state level. So if the city comes out leading on this issue, just as they did on the smoking ban and other issues, and the state all followed within a year or two or three, um, you can get... Um, the, the 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 city council was the first body in Maryland to uh, pass um, a resolution which was meaningless, but for same-sex marriage, um, and everybody else eventually followed that as well. It, it may be the state is a few years behind the city, um, but they think that uh, they need that leadership to to catch up. I I think this is um this is why in some ways I mean I don't think politically it will necessarily hurt Mayor Catherine Pugh in the long run. You don't think the veto will? No, no you don't. Not given, I, I think the voters of not Baltimore. Not given how and who votes, <laughs> not, but well, yeah. it is it is a, a truism of politics that what you do in your first term, people don't really remember by by your, your second by you know the fourth Four year years in office. Out, right. But um, I do think that this is a very, if you look at polling, not only of city voters but of state voters as well, the fifteen dollar minimum wage is a very popular is a popular issue so uh and the fact that she could be painted as a flip-flopper on it i you know i could i could see there being political ramifications from this i agree yeah i mean this is i mean it's uh when we just think of the money i mean we talked about seven dollars and something an hour it's like fifteen thousand dollars a year i mean i just think about trying to live on fifteen thousand dollars a year yeah it's just (laughs) impossible I think it's interesting that people don't forget like they used to, right? So the world has changed now. You're thinking four years out, we're still going to have the Internet. We're still going to have Twitter. Someone's going to bring it up to remind us of exactly what she did in ways that maybe wouldn't have done before. I mean, now what you do lives forever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just think about things in your past, Steiner. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, where'd that come from? Oh, man. It's the last time you come on the show. Mixing it up a little bit from Monday morning. (laughs) All right. <laughs> All right. So we've got time for one more call. We do not. Yes, no. You're the boss. No, they say no. Okay. So th- this has been a really interesting conversation. I think the stuff we have to come back to, which is looking more in depth at the $15 wage. And I'm very curious. Uh, we've been starting to do our research about uh, what has been the effect on other cities when they have passed a $15 minimum wage, like Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's the effect on cities that are like ours, which have a high demographic of people of color and poor people in the city. How has it affected those cities? Mm-hmm. It's been interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah, in some ways we're still in the test experiment on, for, for these cities, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. The data will come out. Um, it's so funny with economics because and I, I don't want to talk for too long. I know we got to yeah, go. Really, yeah. <laughs> but you can find an economist to say anything. Oh, on yeah, right. Side of the right. Issue. Exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. On any of the issues. And also, I think the, the issue around women of color uh, yes. Sexual abuse, uh, missing women, the role of the police is really very critical to keep the, the heat up on this. And also, you know, this reminded me of in, in your earlier segment about bail reform, too, is that women disproportionately um, are arrested on these low level crimes, are also kind of set up to fail by an enhanced pretrial supervision. 
right? Because they have children to care for. They lose the the opportunity to work. Um, And that's something that we'd also like to get into is that if we're not centering women in these conversations about criminal justice reform, we're we're doing a disservice to women. Jessica Lewis, now organizer of the Power Inside. Congratulations. You're a great organizer. They're lucky. (laughs) It's good to have you there. (laughs) Luke Broadwater, reporter for The Sun, covering City Hall on local politics. Good to have you back as always, Luke. Dr. K. Whitehead, Associate Professor of Communication and African and African American Studies at Leola University of Maryland, sometime host and co-host of the Mark Steiner Show. Good to have you back in the house. Never kick me off. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all. And thank you all for calling in and writing and making the show what it is. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our intern uh, is Michael Dixon. Our engineer is Andre Milton. Theme music by Wal Matthews with Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talkastonishow.org. The podcast is Stoner Show. And share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at stonishow.org or use your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.